Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm very pleased to be joined this week by Ben Rhodes, who is the former national security advisor to President Barack Obama and his main foreign policy speechwriter and the author now of a memoir, The World As It Is Inside the Obama White House. Ben, welcome. Thanks. Now, this book begins and ends with the transition um, yes. So, yeah. I mean, you were with Obama from yeah. the campaign initially in 2007, yeah. right the way up to, to the, you know, <laughs> the beginning and the end of your yes. book. And one thing that's really striking in that is Obama's famous chill is on show here. He's sort of saying, you know, making Yoda-like yeah. speeches about, yeah. you know, oh, well, there are as many grains of sand yeah, in the yeah, oceans yeah, as there are yeah, stars yeah. in the sky. Yeah, yeah. Was there not just some point at which he sort of banged his head against the table and, you know, just... After the election. Swore after the election. I mean, you think, can he have that sort of song for But maybe that's his character. You know, there was one moment, but I will say that the, the calm is, is actually true. Um, you know, he, there are a couple of moments in the book where I try to explain it. We were in Hawaii, for instance, where, you know, he grew up. And we were at this very peaceful bay. I feel like you're at the end of the earth. And he pointed to this bench overlooking the ocean, and he said that his mother used to come sit there when she was pregnant with him, and he attributed some of his calm to that. <laughs> and the other thing is he said, you know, living in Jakarta as a boy, this kind of teeming city, you know, you have to learn to not be too focused on yourself, that when you're part of kind of a mass of humanity like that, you, you have perspective. Anyway, he, there was kind of an Asian-type serenity he had. And after the election, he, he often, you know, history doesn't move in a straight line. It zigs and zags, he would say. He sent me that email on the night of the election, there are more stars in the sky than grains of sand on the earth. But, you know, he was constantly seeking out the, the, the longer perspective. He did show one flash of anger, I remember. You know, we were in Germany after the election, and he'd had this kind of wrenching meeting with Angela Merkel. That's a odd piercing bit where you describe a tear coming to her eye and yeah. him saying, poor Angela, she's all alone now. That's right, and you spent this kind of three-hour dinner alone with her, and I think they're talking about all the problems in the world, and she's saying she's actually inclined to run for another term, in part because of Trump, because she feels there needs to be some stability. And so he felt this kind of weight that was left on her. And I made this joke to him before they had a press conference. I said, you know, this is probably the last time you're going to hear the U.S. president defend the liberal international order for a while, you know? It was kind of dark humor that we would use. And he got kind of mad. He's like, you know, you're right. And he's like, you know, I've got it all teed up for Trump. You know, I've got a great economy. You know, we're not in a big war anymore. And maybe this is all people want. Maybe they just want the cartoon. Maybe they just want the crazy. And, and, and as he went, I could tell he was actually angry. And what he was actually saying, and I talked to him about it, is, Trump couldn't have gotten elected in 2008 in a financial crisis with 150,000 troops in Iraq. People wouldn't have taken that risk on Trump. And what angered Obama is that some of his very successes made it possible for people to just say, oh, we'll take a shot on this crazy guy, you know. Yeah. Now, you're, you know, you were in the foreign policy role. And, I mean, you know, when you started this, you were pretty young. You know, you're an yeah. MFA rather than an international relations graduate. Yeah. You know, you... and. You came in, I mean, your background, for those listeners who don't know it, you, you worked on the Iraq study group yeah. and helped draft the 9-11 commission report. So, you know, you yeah. <laughs> went into foreign yeah. policy that way. But, you know, suddenly and from a standing start, you were kind of expected, presumably, to master all international relations, yeah. you know, world history, every tension. Every, I mean, how do you pick that up on the hoof? Well, you know, 
you're right. In the, I was 29 when I went to work for Obama, and I had a few years of experience in foreign policy. And I got to work on, because it was 9-11 in Iraq, kind of the, the defining events of our foreign policy in the beginning of the 21st century. But when you're a foreign policy speechwriter, you have to be a generalist because you have to write about everything. And, you know, you have to, number one, understand who you're writing for and what is his voice and how do you get inside his head and, and communicate the worldview that he has. I was helped in that process in that he'd written pretty revelatory books about what he thought about the world. You also need to know the dimension of issues. And that's where, frankly, being in the U.S. government is helpful because you have treasure troves of expertise in the U.S. government. But then the other thing is, you know, when we would go to other countries, for instance, you would know that the speech that Barack Obama gave in that country might barely register at home, but it's a huge and consequential event in that country. And I would actually always make it a point to try to read something contextual, a work of history or even a novel from the place where we were visiting. You know, I wanted that balance of, you know, what does Obama think? What does the U.S. government think? And then what are the people in these places think so that you know you have the different dimensions that can inform so that nearly got speech. you in trouble in berlin didn't it it did you know, story that's there. right yeah and so in berlin you're always looking for the right evocative piece of history to put into a speech and so you know i'm writing the speech and i'm feeling a bit daunted because you know kennedy gave the Ichbin ein berliner speech there and reagan tear down this wall and i find this anecdote in a book actually it was about the candy bombers, the American pilots who had, had dropped food and, and candy to children into Berlin during the airlift. And a German woman had run out into the streets and yelled, you know, we are a community of fate. And, and I thought, community of fate, well, that's a great line. That, that was a very Obama line. You know, we are the ones we've been waiting for. Yes, we can. We are a community of fate. So we put that as a climax of the speech and even put the German word for that in, which I, I won't even try to say because I can't pronounce it. And two hours before the speech, I'm kind of staring at this word, and I'm thinking, well, does this word really translate to community of faith? So I Google it, and it, Google Translate says it does. But I saw some Nazi references in the, in the search. And so I called the German guy who was translating the speech so that when it broadcast, you know, there could be subtitles. And he said, oh, thank you for calling that is the theme of one of Hitler's first speeches to the Reichstag. <laughs> this word, this phrase, community of faith, you know, which, you know, terrifyingly, you could actually see that, you know, Hitler. And I then had to go up to Obama and say, you know, walk into his hotel room. He's in workout clothes. He's smoking back then. And I was like, hey, you know that line you really liked that we ended the speech on? Uh, and he's like, yeah. And he's like, that actually was uh, the theme of one of Hitler's first speeches at the Reichstag. And... Um, he kind of put out his hand, like, give me a minute here. And then he just devolved into laughter, you know, which was a good indication of his character. He wasn't going to yell at me. He could see the absurdity in it. But you did know uh, in writing for a president that, you know, if you put a foot wrong, you know, you can really step in it. And they we're that close. And, and what was your process? I mean, you've said, you say in the book that you read and reread and reread Dreams from My Father, you know, which yeah. of course has. You know, it was particularly amazing because it was written before he was a politician, yeah. so it's kind of yeah. unguarded, you know, it's um, right. authentically his own cadences. And did you kind of have sort of Barack's voice in your head as you were writing? I mean, do you have yeah. some version of... The two things I did is I read and reread that book, which, again, is, is an honest expression of his worldview. I actually sometimes would even lift phrases from that book or, you know, paragraphs that I would turn into speech language because it was so personal. But then I also got, we had an archive of all the interviews he did. And I used to listen 
to even obscure radio interviews he gave to just hear how he talked and what his voice was. Because, you know, the trick to being a speechwriter is you could write a great speech, a very well-written document. But if it's not in the voice of the person you're writing for, it's not going to work, particularly if they have a distinct voice. I mean, I've actually written for some other politicians where it doesn't really matter. You can give them the speech with the five-point plan. Obama likes to build speeches a certain way. He likes to make arguments and frame them a certain way. And he has very particular, unique manners of speaking. And so I did have to get that voice into my head. And and for the first year or two, that was some work. But then, you know, now I've written more in his voice than my own. The book was actually a challenge to, to revert back to my own voice for the first time in 10 years. I mean, John Favreau famously said it was like being Ted Williams' batting coach, that, you know, yeah. he could write his own speech. And you yeah. say he drafted the Nobel speech himself yeah. and he drafted the race speech himself, I yeah. think. Did he write Grant Park as well? No. Who was Grant Park? That was Favreau. And we had a team on the campaign. And so something like that, Favreau would take the lead and... We'd sit in there and have our laptops out and offer lines. The speeches, you know, there were a handful that he wrote himself, and they tended to be charged moments. So the noble, and by writing himself, you know, we'd give him some draft, and he would essentially ignore it and rewrite his whole speech by hand. He likes to write by hand. He's actually writing his book now by hand, which is going to take a while. But the Nobel Prize address, the speech in the campaign on race, the Amazing Grace speech that he gave, where yeah. he sang Amazing Grace. Uh, well, Pastor Clemente Picnic. Yes, yeah, yeah. that's another one that he'd rewritten by hand. Another one I worked for him on that I really like, I mean, it obviously doesn't stand out in other people's minds as much, but the speech he gave in Hiroshima. You know, there was, it's interesting, the ones that he would engage on like that tended to be complicated moments because of history or race, where if he didn't say it exactly in his personal vo- voice, it wouldn't be authentic. Ironically, the Grant Park thing, the, the yes, we, I did work on the yes, we can speech in the, in the campaign. You know, those, his voice, his authentic voice is not as soaring as those. You know, he's more of a lecturer, and I mean that in the best term. You know, he likes to, to, to build a, a thoughtful argument. So we actually had to, to push him in the campaign to some of that more soaring rhetoric, yes, we can. And that's where speechwriters matched into uh, to his worldview. And can I ask what, because you you know you were both young guys and you were both yeah. you know, in charge of the master's voice, what was your relationship with Favreau like? Were you rivalrous? Or? No, you know, it was interesting. I came to work on that campaign and he was the young star. And we weren't at all rivalrous. He was very generous and kind of, he helped me figure this out. You know, here's, here's how he likes to say certain things. Read this, read that. He wanted no part of foreign policy. <laughs> and so part of the reason it worked is that John was very candid and being like, I, I don't like dealing with foreign policy. He didn't have any background in it. He didn't like having to manage a whole bunch of foreign policy advisors, all of whom think they know better. So he was more than willing to cede that, you know, issue set. And then... Otherwise, we also kind of had fun. Like I was saying, in some of those campaign speeches, I remember that Yes, We Can speech, for instance. Favreau and I were in New Hampshire, and we wrote some of that in the back of a car, and we had a laptop out, and we we're going back and forth, and, you know, well, let me do this line. And it almost became, if it was rivalrous, it was like, I'm going to top you, you know, in the best sense, you know. And so, you know, he, better than anybody, including me, could capture that political inspiration, you know, what you see in that Grand Park speech, for instance, in that Yes, We Can speech, it was Favreau's line, 
you know, in the improbable story of America, in the improbable story of America, there's never been anything false about hope. You know, he he could find that. I actually was probably more attuned to Obama's. Let me build an argument where I tell you, here's how we got to where we are. Here's what's in front of us. You know, here's the different options, and here's where I'm going to go. So we balance each other out. Probably complement each other well. Sure. And I mean, the other thing that sort of struck me is interesting. You describe how. You know, when you started out, you were taking advice from all these, you know, wonks. Yeah. And that Obama would say, no, 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 <laughs> yeah. just tune them out yeah. a bit. And I remember Peggy Noonan in her memoir describes, she says, you know, by the time the person who's adding the literary stuff to the speech gets there, that, you know, yeah. advisors all call it kind of the woo-woo and yeah. you know, that doesn't count. I mean, Yeah, with our process, it was interesting. You know, Obama would, if it was an important speech, a big speech, he would have a pretty clear idea of what he wanted to say. So he called me in, and sometimes these sessions could go an hour. He would kind of narrate the outline of what he wanted to say and particular points he wanted to make. And then you would take this, and you'd kind of make a draft out of it. But then it goes to these teams of advisors who are you know, up to kind of the Secretary of State and you know, then political advisors, and everybody wants to change the speech and to, to suit their, their interests. And you become an editor, essentially. And... Then it goes back to Obama. And what happened to me early on is, you know, I was a bit daunted. I was this young guy. Here are these people I've heard of, you know, these famous foreign policy, you know, former officials and generals, and they're changing all this language. But when I give it back to Obama, he'd say, well, why'd you change that? And I'd say, well, you know, so-and-so said we had to make this change. And he's like, well, no, I want it this way. And what was interesting that happened to me is I then kind of got this reputation of rejecting all these edits. But in fact, it was Obama's preference. And over time, frankly, I probably became a bit of a target because it was easier to blame the young kid speechwriter than to recognize the fact that Obama actually just didn't want to say it the yeah. way you wanted to. Uh, so you, you know, as a speechwriter, you're a writer, but you're also very much an editor. And one of the things that struck me was that you're quite candid about the way that American foreign policy is kind of quite contradictory because you yeah. say, you know, there are, there are all these sort of programs that have been devised, you know, by previous administrations that kind of overlap and contradict yeah. each other. I mean, do you th- in a way, do, do you think there's at least, now it's looking like foreign policy is going to be at least more consistent in the sense that, <laughs> you know, the Trump administration doesn't have that kind of pragmatic... Well, actually, the Trump administration, although is also kind of the perfect manifestation of it, because on any given day, watching this from afar, the positions expressed by the State Department are kind of the traditional U.S. positions. And Trump doesn't agree with most of them. I mean, to an extreme version, the State Department put out a report last week criticizing other countries who separated children from their parents as engaging in human trafficking. Yeah, I thought And it's like, well, Trump is doing the exact same thing on the southern border. I, I think for us, you know, what I was kind of getting at was the inheritance embedded in American foreign policy. Like, so for us, you could have a policy... And I spent a lot of time on Cuba in the book because that is the negotiation that, that I was involved in, normalizing relations with Cuba, where nobody would design that policy the way it was today. And you know, we put this embargo in place, this complete sanction and isolation of Cuba, these absurd rules that Americans can't even travel to Cuba. We won't even have an embassy there because it was at the height of the Cold War. And yet that policy never changed. It was just the way we always did things. And to change that, we frankly had to spend, I had to negotiate for two years with, with Raul Castro's son and bring in the Vatican to make that change. And, and I, you know, I think people have to recognize that even with Trump, 
you know, this is not all a blank slate. And the orientation of the United States around the world is an ocean liner, as I describe it. And it's hard to turn around an ocean liner. Now, Trump is trying like hell to turn that thing as fast as he can. But, you know, you still have legacy agreements you're in and alliances you have and obligations. So it's not as – the president, presidency is not as all-powerful in office as it can look from, from the outside. Yeah. Did the um, – incidentally, that, that State Department note about the family separation policy overseas, I think a lot of us here, and I don't know whether we read it rightly or wrongly, thought this was very sort of, you know, weapons-grade, subtle State Department trolling – or was it, do you think, just a coincidence? No, that I think came it's probably the habitual. They probably put out at some regular basis this kind of note, right? And it's hard for them to square. I mean, I'll give you another example the, the recent G7 summit, right? Where your prime minister was there, of course. And, you know, the U.S. government probably approached that whole summit a certain way. Like, we go to the G7 and we negotiate a communique and we all issue the communique. Here's what we agree on. And Trump basically decided, because he was angry at Justin Trudeau, we're not going to, we're going to pull out of that. And he probably just upended, you know, hundreds of hours of work that diplomats had done. Because I I think there is a, there's, there's a certain autopilot to how the U.S. government functions. And Trump is so out of step with that autopilot that that those things are happening all the time. Um, I think speaking of all this diplomacy, you got a a lovely detail, you got a gold star for traveling you know, however, it was a million, a million miles, miles plus on yeah. Air Force yeah. One. No, I mean, it's practically yeah. your second home. But what's astonishing to me is that you, you describe Air Force One as being like this kind of really crappy sort of 1980s throwback. Yeah. I mean, we imagine it to be extremely luxurious inside, is it? So the irony is that the Air Force One that we used was built when Ronald Reagan was president. And so when I first got on, I described it as it's, it's, it is the coolest plane you've ever been on, right? Because it's a giant 747 with conference room and all these different you know, rooms and but the the furniture had kind of this beige 80s quality to it the workspace i remember when we started there were these giant computers that looked like they were you know pcs from the 90s the kind of thing you turn on and it makes it coughs a few times and you know the screen takes like a minute to turn on it wasn't like the kind of spaceship quality um, <laughs> pointings that you would imagine. Didn't you turn it, turn it on and find an old memo from the Bush Yeah, so I, this was one of the most interesting things to me. The first time I got on Air Force One, I went to that workspace and I pull up the computer. And on there are the remarks that George W. Bush gave when Russia invaded Georgia. And it was a pretty stark reminder of how temporary you are in these jobs, even though I would be there for eight years, you know, that – that, you know, there was a guy sitting in this chair totally different than me a few, you know, it's a few months ago. At some point, there'll be somebody else. And, you know, you have that, that very cute sense. And there's also, I, I remember, there's something peculiar about how they move the president of the United States around. So you get out to Air Force One, and, and if you don't fly Marine One, the helicopter with them, you get there early. And this voice would give you these updates and say, the president is 30 minutes out. The president is five minutes out. The president has arrived. Um, and you realize that they don't say President Obama. The, the president is kind of this thing that has moved around the world by this plane. And the plane has been there before you were there and will be there after. Those people are going to be there before and after. You know, you're temporary, even the president, in these jobs. And I remember that striking me very powerfully in that first trip where we end up going to London, actually. We're flying here for the G20 and the depths of the financial crisis. So it seemed like the most dramatic thing in the world at the time. 
and actually, in, interestingly, in retrospect, very few people remember just how dire the economic situation was at that G20. Again, that's another indicator that, you know, what can seem like the most pressing, urgent, dramatic thing uh, in your life at any given moment, you know, history moves on. And we must have had 25 of those moments, you know, while I was there for eight years. Well, one of the, I mean, I was struck with, I'd almost completely forgotten the incredible row about Benghazi. Oh, yeah, that went yeah, on yeah, for yeah, ages, and yeah. that's part of you know the centerpiece yeah. of your book. You went through the complete yeah. ring. I mean, that must have been the yeah. sort of yeah. beginning of the whole. Well, not the beginning, but just as fake news and all that stuff was really getting yeah. underway. I mean, it's interesting. And it may not. I mean, I don't know how much it registered over here, but it be, you know became this massive conspiracy theory that that we had invented, made up a story about Benghazi to blame that attack on a on an internet video that actually had provoked a lot of violent protests across the Middle East. And then it begat other conspiracy theories. And, and you know, we were running guns in Benghazi or Obama watched that attack on a drone feed. I mean, crazy conspiracy theories. The reason I spent a lot of time on it in the book is because I realized how connected it was to Trump. Because essentially, you had a whole kind of nexus of media and politics in the United States that was dedicated to not just being anti-Obama, but to conspiracy theory. And it didn't matter if there was any truth to it whatsoever, that, that it could survive on this. And I described the weird feeling of I'd check my Twitter feed and, you know, most days I'd get you know, a few dozen people tweeting at me. There'd be spikes where like a thousand people would be all you know, spouting the same conspiracy theory. And some days it was I was part of a Jewish conspiracy and other days I was in the Muslim Brotherhood. But the point was that somewhere out in America, like a talk radio segment had run or a Breitbart story had run. And I realized that there was this ecosystem of conspiracy theory media and kind of far right wing politics that was building and that had an enormous audience and was enough, frankly, to, to, to sustain four years of congressional investigations into Benghazi when they lost track of what they were even investigating, right? Trump very much emerged from that milieu. You know, the birther movement, Obama wasn't born in the United States, was very much in that same ecosystem. And so I wanted to, to communicate the experience of being kind of a, a bit player, a small-time villain in the, the larger drama of that, of that world. And you got a sort of early sniff of the Russian, you know, because you started yeah. to spot that some of these things were coming out of the Ukraine and, yeah. the, you know, these... Do you think there was anything you and your old boss could or should have done differently in the run-up to, you know? Yeah, I do. Um, I definitely do think we could have done more and done things differently. And the reason Ukraine is important in understanding that is that once the Russians went into Crimea, I saw them move to a different gear in terms of their use of weaponization, frankly, of information. They were willing to lie. They were willing to intercept phone calls of our diplomats and release them publicly. They were, were creating huge volumes of fake news about Ukraine, you know, uh, misinformation about who was to blame for violence. They denied that there are any Russians there as Russians are fighting there. And then they'd make up fake news about that. And, and if you I remember when MH17, the civilian airliner from that took off from the Netherlands, was shot down over Ukraine. They created so much fake news about that, that it was actually the Ukrainians who shot it down or just to, to muddy the water, that you know, Dutch internet users who searched MH17, they get all these fake news stories, right? They brought that same capability into our election. And what we didn't do is our government approached it as like a cybersecurity issue where 
they had hacked the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, and some other organizations and released emails. Even the statements that we did issue were about, you know, Russia had hacked and, and released these emails. We didn't give people that, the context around the fake news. We didn't communicate to people, you know, that, that Russia's information war <laughs> inside the United States was far beyond hacked and released emails. I think there are a couple reasons for that. One is it's hard to do because we can't go into somebody's Facebook feed and say, well, this is a fake news story from Russia and this isn't. You know, We're not the editor-in-chief as the U.S. government of what people are consuming on the Internet. But secondly, when I would raise this with Obama, he'd say, well, the people consuming that are people who are inclined to believe it, right? So if you're the kind of person that is reading an article about you know, how Hillary Clinton is corrupt or she is you know, suffering from some terrible disease and you know, these are the kinds of fake news stories the Russians were creating, you're not going to listen to Barack Obama. Like, he felt like he wasn't a good messenger to condition people. I think, in looking back on it, that we could have done more to paint this picture of, of what the Russians are doing. I think the French did a good job of that in their presidential election. They basically told people, this is what's going to happen – Here's what to look for, like, you know, here's why the Russians are doing it and what they're trying to achieve. And, and, and that probably inoculated their public more than, than ours was. Now, I mean, it's sometimes said kind of semi in jest that, you know, had Obama not ragged on Trump so badly during that White House correspondence dinner, whatever it was. Yeah. You know, none of this would ever have happened. I mean, there is, it's obviously a joke, but there is such a personal animus there, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, do you feel that kind of a lot of what Trump is doing really is directed simply to undoing things because they're what? I think that's some of it. I think um, I don't I don't subscribe to the theory of that dinner because, you know, frankly, that was in the spring of 2011, and if Trump was that mad, he could have run for president against Obama in 12. Look, I think I should be frank. Um, I think to a certain brand of person in America, including Trump. A black man succeeding in that job was more enraging than a black man failing in that job. If Obama had kind of been a disaster and fallen on his face as president, they wouldn't have been nearly as enraged as they were that he was up to the part. That was threatening because that challenges all the presumptions of who should be in charge of institutions in the United States. And so I think Obama's success and popularity drove Trump far crazier than if, if Obama was had been a, a complete disaster as president now it, i mean i i think you, you know a lot of us probably can can guess at your your general <laughs> hope for what what, yeah. what will happen with the trump administration it's not you know he's not your favorite person but there's a line in the book where you say if i can quote it to you say if obama's faith in norms and institutions is validated then the truth will all come out and consequences will flow from that you know obama's sort of belief that the institutions are robust enough do you yeah. share that confidence do you think that Sooner or later, I, I, I don't. Good. You, you know, we are going to have a test in the United States in the next few months about whether there is an independent judiciary and rule of law in the United States. I think that the Russia investigation, the prosecutor Bob Mueller, will find all kinds of of, of crimes. And I, I don't say that with any insider knowledge. I just I know I know enough and have consumed enough news to and know who Bob Mueller is to think that okay, this guy is more likely than not, you know going to be shooting fish you know in the barrel. You yeah, no, I, 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 I worked with him when he was an FBI director. The Republican, you know, he was a Republican appointed by Bush, though, so he wasn't, you know, one of our people in that regard. But 
my sense is that Trump is trying to, well, not sense, it's clear. He's trying to undermine that investigation. He's attacking the credibility of the FBI. He's trying to direct the Justice Department to do his bidding, which in our system doesn't, that's not what happens. You know, the president doesn't control the Justice Department and the FBI. There's some independence of investigations. And there'll be a test that, you know, if, if he tries to essentially undermine the capacity of anybody to conduct an independent investigation into Russia or any other matter, it's going to be a test of whether there are independent institutions in the United States that can stand up to the presidency or not. And I think there are going to be serious consequences about how that shakes out that go beyond Donald Trump. It goes to the, the health of American democratic institutions. Well, we'll wait and see. Yeah. Ben, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.